0: All right, welcome back to Listener's Commentary on the Book of Acts. In this recording, we will be looking at Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. It's the second half of what we call the first missionary journey. And to put that in context, let's just recall where we're at in the journey. Barnabas and Saul sailed from the city of Antioch in Syria to the island of Cyprus, and they traveled from the east side of the island, specifically from the city of Salamis, to the west side of the island to the city of Paphos. And Luke focuses his telling of the story on the city of Paphos and on Paul and Barnabas specifically engaging with the Roman proconsul on the island whose name was Sergius Paulus. In that story, Paul and Barnabas, as they engage with Sergius Paulus, are opposed by one of Sergius Paulus' advisors, who's a Jewish magician, whose name is Bar-Jesus, or Elimus, as he's called, both of those. And Paul and Barnabas confront him. He walks away blind, and Sergius Paulus walks away believing in the name of Jesus. And that's where Luke ends his telling of what happened on the island of Cyprus. And from there, Paul and Barnabas are going to sail north to the mainland into what is now modern-day Turkey, but then was the region of Galatia. And Luke will focus our attention on a handful of snapshots from Paul's ministry in the region of Galatia. The first of those is in the city of Antioch in Pisidia. Let's pick up the story in Acts 13, verse 13. It says this, Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So they sailed out of Paphos north and landed at the harbor town of Perga. Luke doesn't describe any significant ministry in Perga, not that there wasn't any. He just doesn't focus on that. He tells us one key event that happened in Perga. And that key event is that John, John Mark, who's been with them for the journey thus far as a helper, Luke has told us, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Notice, he doesn't return to Antioch, where they set out from. He returns to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is his hometown. He's the son of Mary, and Mary's house in Jerusalem has been a key meeting place for the church since the very beginning, and he returns home. And we're not told exactly why John returns home. And there's been plenty of speculation about it and a variety of reasons given. Some of the reasons are things like, maybe he got sick. Why would someone suggest that? Well, we know Paul got sick. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says that the first time he came to them, he came because of bodily ailment or sickness. And so maybe John got sick and just decided to go home. Or... Maybe he was jealous of the fact of Paul's rising prominence and his relative Barnabas, you know, seemingly decline in prominence. Some have suggested that. Or maybe he was afraid of making the journey inland. Ancient resources say that the journey from Perga up to Antioch was fraught with all sorts of dangers, both dangers from people as well as dangers from rivers and rocks and hills and nature and all of that. And so maybe he just was like, nah, it's too much for me. I'm done. And so maybe he was just afraid and went home. Some have suggested he just got homesick. He's a young man. He's out on this journey. He wanted to go back home to Jerusalem. So there's been a variety of suggestions given. I just don't think any of those suggestions that I've just listed off make the best sense of the data. All it says here is that John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But at the beginning of the second journey, Barnabas wants to take John Mark again along with them, and Paul is like, no way. In fact, Paul is so opposed to taking John Mark with them on the second journey that actually he and Barnabas split. So here's a ministry team that has been together for years, and they split and go separate directions over this idea of taking John Mark along. And so whatever the reason is that John Mark left, it had to be a big enough reason, a big enough problem that Paul was like, I will have absolutely nothing to do with John Mark going on another trip, at least not now. Now, we do know that later in Paul's ministry, he and John Mark reconciled. He says in Colossians that if he comes to Colossae, welcome him. He says in 1 Timothy chapter four to get John Mark because he's useful to me. So we know that whatever this rift was between Paul and John Mark, he patched it up later. But at the time, it was a big enough deal that Paul was willing to split with Barnabas over the issue. And so whatever the reason John Mark left, it had to be a big enough deal to account for that. Personally, here's what I think it is. And again, I'm reading between the lines and I'm speculating. We are never actually told in the book of Acts. I think part of the problem is is that John Mark was uncomfortable as a Jewish Christian from a very central family in the city of Jerusalem. I think John Mark may have been uncomfortable with Barnabas and Paul's direct ministry to Gentiles apart from the synagogue. The reason I think that is because it's coming out of a story such as that when John Mark leaves. John Mark goes back to Jerusalem when Barnabas and Saul arrived in Antioch at the end of the first journey. Jews from Jerusalem come to Antioch and begin giving Paul and Barnabas grief for preaching directly to the Gentiles. Well, where did they learn that? The place that makes most sense is they learned that from John Mark when he came back to Jerusalem and expressed his concerns about how they were going about that. And that would also account for why Paul was so upset, because that grief that was given to them in Antioch when they returned eventually led to the Jerusalem conference. And the Jerusalem conference had to wrestle with, is Paul's ministry legit the way it is? Is it okay for him to go directly to Gentiles? They confirmed that, and then Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul's like... Dude, no, not right now. It's too soon, too soon. That's the way I read it, but again, I'm reading between the lines because the text itself doesn't tell us. Whatever the reason is, John Mark leaves here in Perga, and it creates eventually a rift between uh, Paul, John Mark, and even Barnabas for a time over it. So they land in Perga, John Mark leaves, verse 14, going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. So they travel due north from Perga to Pisidian Antioch, and as I noted, uh, ancient sources make it pretty clear that the trip to Antioch was fairly dangerous. In fact, a first century geographer by the name of Strabo says that uh, this particular trek inland was uh, noted for robbers and floods of the various rivers. It was about a hundred mile trip inland. Not only was it inland, it was up to the high central plateau. Antioch sits at about 3,600 feet above sea level. Perga is right at sea level. So it's a good, hard, long trip inland. But they make the trip from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. We know from Galatians that uh, they made this trip and Paul arrived at Galatia and he was in some sense sick. He describes it as some sort of bodily illness that he had when he arrived. He even seems to suggest that it was their trip inland was somewhat motivated by that. Some have speculated what that was. Again, we, we don't know for sure. Maybe he People have said maybe he got malaria down in the wet, low-lying lands uh, around Perga, decided to go inland where it was a little more dry and, and recoup there. We just don't know. Whatever it is, they make this trip and Paul's not at his best when they when they arrive. He's not in a good frame of mind, but nevertheless they arrive in Pisidian Antioch and it says on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and they sat down. This is Paul's custom. He begins with the Jew, to the Jew first and then to the Greeks. Not not only theologically, but practically, it makes sense. They're the most prepared for the gospel. There would be God-fearers in the synagogue who were Gentiles, who at least respected the Jewish way of life and the Jewish scriptures. So they would be a ready audience. And so they provide a, a place to begin ministry. So they go into the synagogue and they sit down. Verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the reading assigned for the synagogue service, the synagogue officials sent word to them, Barnabas and Paul, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Why would they give this offer to them? Well, the reason they would give the offer to them is because Paul was trained as a rabbi, and so that would give him some credibility. And Barnabas was a priest, so that would give him some credibility. And so as visiting rabbis to this town, they're invited to offer a word of exhortation, which gives them a chance to speak the gospel. Now, in what follows, Luke is going to give a rather lengthy summary of the sermon that Paul preaches there in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. There are two main points to this sermon. The first point is that Jesus fulfills Old Testament promises, and he's going to, really, that's going to be the bulk of it. He's going to work down telling the Old Testament story to make this point, that Jesus is the climax of that story, that he fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. That's point number one. The second point of this sermon really is the climax of the sermon, and that is that Jesus frees from Old Testament law, that the things that the law could not justify people for, Jesus took care of that. He now is the one in whom there is found justification. So those are the two primary points of this message. So he begins by telling the story of Israel. He picks up with... The fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Exodus. Real briefly, he hits that as he moves forward to the time of Jesus. This is what he says. Beginning in verse 17, he says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. That's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And so we get a real quick summary of the entire time period of the patriarchs, the time period of them relocating to Egypt and then really becoming a massive people in Egypt. And then the Exodus as God with an outstretched arm redeemed them from Egypt. Next, he quickly mentions the wandering for 40 years in the wilderness leading up then to the conquest of the promised land. So he says in verse 18, and for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's the wandering in the wilderness until that first generation had died off because of their faithlessness. Verse 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance. And so that's the conquest that's told in the book of Joshua. The reference to seven nations probably derives from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, where it mentions the specific seven nations that they were going to conquer in order to receive the promised land. And so Paul has quickly summarized their history, their early history, leading up to them becoming a nation in the land of promise. Now there's this little line at the end there of verse 19 that says all of which took about 450 years. And literally all the phrase says is for about 450 years. The all of which is this particular translation's way of trying to figure out how it connects to the surrounding verses. It's just not clear. And so scholars are somewhat divided. Does the For about 450 years, go with verses 18 and 19. In other words, uh, the period of living in Egypt and growing into a great nation leading up to the Exodus, and then the wandering for 40 years, and then the 10 years of conquest, 450 years. You could configure it that way. Or does it go with what follows, and it's the time period from the time they settled the land through the judges up to the first king? that's about 450 years as well. So it's not clear exactly how this 450 years connects to the surrounding verses. It could either go with what precedes, or it could go with what follows. Either way, it fits chronologically. Verse 20 then picks up with the time period after setting the land the time period of the judges. And so it says, after these things, he, God, gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So from the time period they settled the land all the way up to the time period of Samuel the prophet, they were, the nation of Israel was led by local leaders that are referred to as judges. Don't think so much of judges sitting behind a bench in a courtroom. Think of more rulers and leaders who judge, that is, led the people, and particularly when you read the book of Judges, if you're not familiar with it, the the judges were like local tribal leaders who, when there was oppression that came up uh, or some such thing, they were then selected to lead the Israelites to deal with the oppression. In fact, the book of Judges is a fascinating tale of Israel's faithlessness and disobedience and this cycle of disobedience from uh, the Judges and all of that. And so you could read about the period of Judges in the book of Judges, and that leads up to the time period of Samuel. Well, at this point now, we're well into Israelite history, And the people want a king in the history of Israel. So Paul is just summarizing their history, but he's summarizing it to make the point that their history all had a goal and a target, and that goal is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So let's keep reading, as he mentions, the first two kings. And then from the second king, David, he's going to fast forward to Jesus. It goes like this, verse 21. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And so the first king of Israel was Saul and he reigned for 40 years after God had removed him because of his disobedience and his faithlessness. So after God removed him, he raised up David to be their king. David was the second king of the nation of Israel. And it was to David that the great messianic promises were were given, that David would have a descendant to reign on his throne forever and ever. And Paul is going to drive that point home in what follows. And so he, after he removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And so David was chosen to be the next king of Israel because of his willingness to obey God and follow God. Even when he failed, he repented and returned back to God unlike Saul. And so David then was given the kingship. And verse 23 says, From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So from David, Paul fasts forward to Jesus, simply to say that Jesus is Really, the fulfillment of the great promises made to David. The promise that he would have a a son and an heir on his throne forever and ever. The fulfillment of that promise, which is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The fulfillment of that is Jesus himself. And so, he mentions Jesus and he mentions John the Baptist as coming in preparation for Jesus, the Savior and Messiah. And the one who fulfills the promises to David. From there, Paul is going to just mention a little bit more about John the Baptist, and then he's going to drive home the point about Jesus. So verse 25, And while John, this is John the Baptist, was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is a well-known line that's actually recorded in the Gospels from the mouth of John the Baptist. You can actually find it in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.7, and Luke 3.16. What I find fascinating is these words here, when Paul preaches in the, the synagogue, are likely said before any of the Gospels were written. We don't know exactly when the Gospels were written and there's some debate about that, but most would put the Gospels later, at least at least 10 to 15 years after Paul says these words, but Paul is already familiar with these very words that show up exactly as he says it here in the his sermon in Pisidian Antioch, which tells us There's already a stock supply of teachings about Jesus that is well-known and like word for word well-known before they're written down in the Gospels. Now, at this point in Paul's sermon, he's ready to take all of this history and bring it all together to drive home the point about who Jesus is and how they need to respond. And so beginning in verse 26, he says, Brothers, sons of Abraham's family, and those of you who fear God, in other words, Jews and God-fearers, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the declarations of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And so here's what happened. Basically what he's saying is, The rulers in Jerusalem actually condemned the very Messiah, the one who fulfills the promises to David, because they refused to recognize him and the prophets themselves, what the prophets actually said. And he goes on, verse 28, and says, And though they found no grounds for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Pilate was the Roman governor, right, at the time of Jesus' execution. And so he's, again, now reviewing the story of Jesus. And then he says, verse 29, When they had carried out everything that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. And so Paul... Looking at the events of Jesus' death and burial, he sees it as carrying out everything that was written concerning him. Like, this is what had to be. And who knows what passages exactly he has in mind, but I could easily see things like Isaiah 53 and others like that. That they are carrying out the very things that the prophets actually said would happen about the Messiah, to the Messiah. And so they carried all those things out. They took him off of the cross. They laid him in a tomb. But, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Notice that, the emphasis on witnesses. We've seen this since the beginning that the primary job of the apostles was to be an eyewitness of Jesus and especially of his resurrection. And Paul's sermon here, just like all the other sermons and acts, culminate with Jesus' resurrection. They were witnesses Of the resurrection because it's the resurrection that is central to the Messiahship of Jesus. And it's the resurrection then that Paul is going to go on and emphasize here in his sermon there in Pisidian Antioch. He says this in verse 32. And we... We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to those of us who are the descendants by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm. And so by resurrecting Jesus from the dead, by raising him up, God has fulfilled his promises. He now has this this fulfillment of the promise to David, this eternal promise ruler on David's throne is now installed in the person of Jesus, and that's what Paul and his team are preaching. They're preaching the fulfillment of these very promises, and what Paul is going to do and what follows then is going to quote several Old Testament texts to really drive home this point. The first one is from Psalm 2, where it says, you are my son, today I have fathered you. Today, in more traditional translations, I have begotten you. This is Psalm chapter 2, which is a royal ascension psalm. And the picture isn't that Jesus was born, obviously, by virtue of the resurrection. The picture is... Uh, deeming the heir to the throne. That's the picture in Psalm chapter 2. And so a new king is being installed on the throne. He is the heir to the kingdom, uh, the heir to all the nations. And he's going to rule on behalf of God. And Psalm 2 had become really a messianic psalm, a psalm that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah when God would fulfill his promise to David and he would install the great king on the throne forever and ever. Well, Paul's point here in the sermon is that the resurrection of Jesus was like his coronation day. It was the day he was declared the son of God with power by virtue of his resurrection. In fact, Paul actually uses this very same language in the beginning of the book of Romans. He says this about Jesus. He says, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, namely, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, what Paul is saying here in his sermon in Pisidian Antioch is the same thing he really writes at the beginning of the book of Romans, that... You are my son, today I fathered you means you have been crowned as king. This is a royal ascension psalm where it's crowning someone as the successor, the king. And so Jesus is declared king but with power by virtue of the resurrection from the dead. Paul goes on in his sermon and says this in verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, Never again to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and faithful mercies of David. Now, we need to clarify a few things here in verse 34. The opening phrase, as for the fact, is not in the original. It's supplied by the uh, translators trying to figure out, logically, the connection between verse 34 and 33. But literally, it just begins with the word that, hati in Greek, which could be that or could be because. I actually think because makes more sense. We could get rid of having to supply a whole phrase if we just started this with the word because, which is what hati means. So because he raised him from the dead, never again to return to decay, he is spoken in this way. In other words, the resurrection is established. We're not trying to establish the resurrection by quoting this, this promise or this text about the faithful and holy mercies of David. The resurrection is an established fact. Because of that, we got to look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures are actually saying. And so, because he raised him from the dead, because that's a given fact, never again to return to decay. Notice that. That's what's significant about Jesus' resurrection, right? Some of the people that Jesus you know, raised during his ministry, they were going to die again. What's unique about Jesus' resurrection is he's the first person to be raised from the dead with an immortal body, never to die again, never again to return to decay. So because God raised him from the dead, never again to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and faithful mercies of David." That is a quote from uh, Isaiah 55, verse 3. And it is alluding back to that promise in 2 Samuel 7, basically saying that there's going to come a time where God's going to take the faithful remnant of Israel and give them those promises. If you go back and look at Isaiah 55 and see the context, which is always a good idea when you come across an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, it's always good to read it in its Old Testament context and try to see what's going on there. Well, in that context, the prophet Isaiah is basically issuing a call to return to God. Uh, to come to him. It's actually God's word spoken through Isaiah to return to God, to come to him. And when they do that, God will give them these promises that were made to David, the faithful and holy promises given to David. So now, quoting Isaiah 55.3 here in a sermon, what Paul is essentially saying is Jesus is the culmination of our story. And in order to receive those holy and faithful promises that God made to David, you need to put your faith in Jesus. What does it mean to return to God? What does it mean to be faithful to him? What does it mean to come and drink the waters of salvation as Isaiah 55 pictures it? Well, it means to come and put your faith in Jesus. He's the one that God has raised from the dead, and he is the fulfillment of that promise to David. Paul then goes on, and he's going to quote another passage that emphasizes the fact that uh, when this great king came, he wouldn't undergo decay. He's actually going to quote from Psalm 16, verse 10. This is what he says in verse 35. Therefore... He also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And so this is a quote from Psalm 1610, and it finds its unique and ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the heir to David's throne, the one who uh, is in the line and lineage of David. He is God's anointed who did not undergo decay. Paul actually explains, very much like Peter did. Peter quoted this very same psalm in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And very much like Peter, Paul draws the implication out. This is what he says. He, He says this, For David, after he had served God's purposes in his own generation, fell asleep and was buried among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. In other words... Though David said this, and in a certain, maybe preliminary sense, it had some reference to David, uh, David himself actually did die and did decay. But there's an ultimate, full, total, great fulfillment of this psalm in the person of Jesus. He is in the line of David. He died he was buried, and then God raised him from the dead, and he did not undergo decay. And thus, we know that Psalm 1610 is ultimately pointing forward to somebody greater than David, someone beyond David, somebody named Jesus, who God raised from the dead. That's the point of Psalm 1610. And so, because God raised him from the dead, never to suffer decay, he is now the one that has fulfilled the the holy and sure promises to David. He is the one in whom, therefore, salvation is now found. And so Paul drives home that point in what follows in the sermon, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things from which you could not be freed, through the law of Moses. The word translated freed in these verses is literally the word justified, Dikaiao in Greek. it's, It's the word that's translated in Romans and in Galatians as justified. I actually think it's significant because in the letter to Galatians, this is the whole issue of the letter to Galatians. Actually, already here in sermon form, Paul explained this and they still go astray and he has to write a whole letter reinforcing this idea that justification is now found not in the Torah, not in the law of Moses, but justification is now found in and through Jesus himself and putting your faith in him. And anyone who's in Jesus, therefore, is justified from the things that the law of Moses could not justify. If you want to know exactly what Paul means by that and thinks about that, read Galatians, particularly Galatians chapter 3, where Paul explains the theology of this in full. And so as Paul drives home the point of the sermon, the point he is making is that in Jesus is where salvation and forgiveness and justification is found. It's in Jesus where God is now forming his people and declaring them to be in the right and forgiving their sins. And so he ends with this really appeal From the book of Habakkuk, he says, Therefore, verse 40, See that the thing spoken of in the prophets doesn't come upon you. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Those words are originally words to the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. And in the context of Habakkuk, they're about uh, God doing a work of really punishing Israel for her unfaithfulness and Habakkuk is having a hard time getting his head around it. It's this new work. Paul is taking that and saying, learn the lesson from Habakkuk that God is doing something new. God is doing something great. And don't make the same mistake as back then and fail to learn the lesson from Habakkuk chapter one, verse five. You need to trust God. You need to trust that God is doing a great work. And Habakkuk actually looks forward Uh, all the way forward to the day when God's going to restore them. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, you know, one of the most well-known passages from Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by faith, quoted regularly in Paul's writings. And what Paul is saying here is, learn this lesson. We need to trust God. And the way you're going to do that now is you're going to put your faith specifically in Jesus, that in him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things you could not be justified of through the law of Moses. And so put your faith in him. Well, uh, the sermon wraps up at that point, And uh, here is the outworking of that in verses 42 and following. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people repeatedly begged them to have these things spoken to them the next Sabbath. So there's a warm response and the people actually are inviting them back next week because they want to hear more about this. Verse 43, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, Many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. And so uh, a number of people believed, came to faith in Jesus. They joined themselves to Paul and Barnabas and were listening to them teach and helping them understand more about this. And so the beginnings of a church are there in Pasidi in Antioch, and we have kind of a core group of initial believers that Paul and Barnabas can teach and talk to and help them understand Jesus and grow in. Well, the next Sabbath rolls around a week later, and verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. In other words, the, over the last week, right, the people have shared and right, the word has spread. There's been enough of an impact that now we've got a huge gathering for the synagogue service. And while that looks like a good thing, it actually becomes a problem because of how people respond. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken of by Paul and were blaspheming. And so as they see this huge crowd... All of a sudden, they're like, no, these are our things. This is our history. These are our people. And immediately they began opposing Paul and Barnabas. They're blaspheming, speaking things that aren't true. And so verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. You're the ones that are most prepared. You are the ones that have the right to hear this first. And so it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have appointed you as a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So notice that Paul holds them accountable for their faithlessness. He says, since you repudiate it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, their reaction demonstrates that they are rejecting God and thus they're unworthy of eternal life. Paul says, we're turning to the Gentiles. We're going to make it our focus now to go to the Gentiles. It's not that Paul will never talk to Jews, and it's not that Jews can't come in. It's that he's going to focus on the Gentiles. I started with the Jews. It was right to do that. It was the responsible thing to do. You've now judged yourself unworthy of it. I'm going to focus on the Gentiles. And Paul grounds this in a passage from Isaiah 49, verse 6. I have appointed you as a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. This passage is one of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, focusing on the suffering servant. And the point in its original context is that the servant himself is going to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. Um, What's unclear in those servant songs is sometimes they're corporate for the people of God, Israel or God's new people, or sometimes they're individual. And so is it just the individual Messiah, the servant, or is it all the people in the Messiah? And Paul would say, both. It's both. And so the Messiah was appointed to be a light to the nations that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We as his representatives, his official ambassadors, we too, like him, are, are sent to be a light to the nations to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Paul and Barnabas are servants of the Israel of fulfillment, they are servants of the Messiah, and they are bringing his news of salvation to the ends of the earth. And notice that phrase, the ends of the earth. Hopefully you hear the connection with the very beginning of the book of Acts, where Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Paul says, that's what we're doing. We are now in that stage of the the mission where we're bringing the salvation of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Well, when the Gentiles heard this, verse 38, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They're like, yes, we want the salvation. We're ready for this. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. And that phrase stands in direct contrast to the phrase in verse 46. The Jews judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, but all those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The point of that phrase is that God has arranged it to be this way. He has put this plan into effect and now the Gentiles are believing according to God's plan and thus they are being saved according to God's plan. And the Jews, at least those Jews who rejected this message, are on the outside now looking in because they have considered themselves unworthy of eternal life. Then verses 49 through 52 wrap up this scene by telling us really the outworking of it and how eventually Paul and Barnabas were forced to leave Antioch. It says this, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. So through their ministry, the news about Jesus is actually spreading beyond just Antioch to the region surrounding it. But the Jews those same ruling Jews, leading Jews who did not believe, the Jews incited devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their region. And so those Jewish rulers, those Jewish leaders They got some devout women of prominence. In other words, some God-fearing women, right? Some women who had clout, wealth, status in the city. And yet who in some way were associated with the synagogue. They stirred them up. And some of the leading men of the city, maybe these were husband and wives and right, we're not sure, but these are people with uh, influence and authority and power in town. And so they stirred them up and then those people initiated opposition and persecution against Paul and Barnabas and their ministry and they were forced to leave the region. Verse 51, then they, Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust off from their feet in protest against them and went down the road to the city of Iconium. And so that'll be the next place where they go is to the the city of Iconium, a handful of miles away. But before they leave Antioch, they shake the dust of their feet off and protest against them. Jesus had actually told his disciples to do this very thing. You can read it in Luke chapter 10, verse 12. It was a symbolic act used sometimes among the Jews, like when returning to Israel after being in Gentile lands. It was a symbolic act to say, we don't want to bring that unclean Gentile dirt into the land of Israel. Um, and it became, by extension then, a symbolic act of saying, we, you are unclean and we are making a clean break with you. And so in shaking the dust of their feet, they are symbolically telling those Jewish leaders, Look, you guys have judged yourself unworthy. You guys are now part of the outsiders looking in. And so they shake the dust off from their feet and protest against them. And they moved on to Iconium. And the disciples there in Antioch were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. A summary sentence by which Luke tells us that they were continuing to grow. And this being filled with joy is consistent in the book of Acts as a mark of being saved. A mark of salvation is joy. And so the disciples are continually filled with joy and they're being filled with the Holy Spirit as they follow Jesus. Now, let me just wrap up this section with just a really brief reflection or thought. It's fascinating to me how parallel. Paul's sermon is, and what Luke records about his ministry in Galatia is, to the letter to the Galatians. I I think it's intentional. Uh, I think we actually see this in several places in the book of Acts, where themes that are important in letters Paul writes to those places actually show up in Luke's summary of his ministry in those places. It seems intentional to me, and it certainly seems that way here. Uh, The sermon focuses on this idea of justification by faith, in Jesus, apart from the law, which is at the very theme uh, of the letter to Galatians. And so it reminds us that where is is forgiveness found? What what is the boundary, if you will, for God's new people, God's people? Where, Where are God's people being formed? Where are the forgiven people of God now found? Well, In Paul's day, the Jews would have said, it's in the Torah, right? Like, you got to keep the Torah, and that's where God's people are formed and found. That's where justification is found. Well, what Paul teaches in his sermon here in Galatia, and what he teaches in the letter to Galatians is that, no, it's found in Jesus that Jesus is now the location where God's people are formed. Jesus is the location where justification is found. And that's why Paul can say that these Jewish leaders who have rejected Jesus have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life because they're outside of Jesus. They're banking on the Torah and their understanding of the Torah, not banking on Jesus. And so, We need to realize that we can't rely on our heritage. We can't rely on our past church experience. We can't rely on our family's church experience. What we have to rely on is Jesus himself, that justification is found by a living, dynamic faith in Jesus himself. That's where God's people are formed and found. That's where forgiveness is found in and through Jesus himself.